IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we talk about my new Pearl Jam book, the massive new Yankee Hotel Foxtrot box set, and the new album by the Yeah Yeah Yeahs. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. He's the one who decided to include one Celine Dion song and zero Neutral Milk Hotel songs on the Pitchfork 90 songs list. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Steve, I'm going to ask you to like listen really close for about two seconds and tell me what you hear. Nothing. You want to know why you hear nothing? Because today I am in a chair with no wheels. Pitchfork has spoken. <laughs> 90s lo-fi production values are out. Wow. Diane Warren, Glenn Ballard is in. We are going hi-fi this week. Best new chair right here. <laughs> you heard it here first, or you didn't hear it here first. That's right. <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, I have mixed feelings about this, you know, because we're getting rid of the squeaks, but maybe we're entering our sellout period. And uh, our our hardcore fans are going to abandon us. Of course, then we're going to get a whole new audience, a much bigger audience. Yeah, I'm with so that. So that's the trade-off. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, you know, you and I were trying to figure out, do we want to talk about the Pitchfork 90s lists this week? You know, is it worth it? You know, this is uh, part of the conversation in the indie world, so you can't really ignore it. But at the same time, it's like, well, what are you going to say about a list Lists are created in order to infuriate, to provoke, to push the ball forward, if you will, on conversations about music. So are we going to talk about this list at all? Or are we going to just say mazel tov and, and go on our way? I mean, I think there are a couple of caveats we need to put forth. You know, a lot of people are asking in my mentions and my email about like, you know, what ha- yo dog. Where is Molly 16 Candles? And I got to say, like, the the key to every successful social movement is organization. And we just were torn asunder by rotting pinata and wax ecstatic vote splitting. Um, Yeah. But I think, you know, you mentioned that. The sponge block. The sponge block was just not as unified as it needed to be. Yeah, a house divided or a wax a rotting pinata divided cannot stand or whatever. But yeah, you mentioned that like the it's to infuriate and to push the ball forward. Like I, you can totally tell who was like an OG pitchfork reader, i.e. someone who's like 35 to 45 years old by talking about like the CDs they bought because of the original list that they're like, wait a minute, this sucks. Like, I mean, Oval made the list again. I remember buying that or that CD for like 18 bucks. And think, oh, this sounds really innovative. It's like, wait a minute, this is like an hour of like skipping CD sounds, you know? Like kids, kids these days won't know the pain of like being robbed of eighteen dollars of their hard-earned money to like listen to something that was like number forty-five on the list. You know, one thing I'll say that I think is true of the new '90s lists because they did a songs list, they did an albums list. The one thing that like the new list and the old Pitchfork list have in common is that this category that I'm going to deem extremely 90s, 90s songs are underrepresented on both <laughs> for different reasons. Like, for me, if you're going to talk about the 90s, there needs to be a space carved out for the Toad the Wet Sprockets, <laughs> the... Uh, uh, Goo Goo Dolls's, the uh, Harvey Dangers, mm. bands like that that are not the headline artists, but they are undoubtedly part of the fabric of what 90s music is. And early Pitchfork disregarded that for one reason, because they were too indie, and new Pitchfork is disregarding that stuff because, for whatever reason, Poptimism has not come for those bands yet. You know, it hasn't come for counting crows yet. Like we can make a nineties list and not have Mr. Jones on it or my beloved along December. Um, I will say too, Wonderwall and November rain have been streamed 
a billion times. Like they're in the billion times stream club. I feel like you got to put at least one of those songs on this list. You know, if we're going to try to be more representative of what music was in its totality, I just feel like, you know, the Poptimism people need to come for Guns N' Roses, Use Your Illusion 1. I think, because that, if we're going to talk about popular music, great music that had an impact, and you're going to talk about Celine Dion, she gets absorbed, Mariah Carey gets absorbed, but those groups don't, I feel like that is still incomplete. Mm. So maybe the next Pitchfork list will finally recognize the extremely 90s, 90s songs. Because that's something Pitchfork, both of those lists, that's the one thing they have in common. They both overlook that part of 90s music, which is a huge part of 90s music. Well, as long as th- th- this is our niche, you know, like maybe it's just going to be like an indie cast <laughs> like 90s list where we put, you know, Harvey Danger it's sponge it's collective soul it's funny because i think you like kind of hit the nail on the head as far as like why and like i have to like deep breathe like shoulder slouch every time i say optimism in the year 2022 it's like though you what you mentioned are rock bands which are like antithetical to the concept i suppose um you know it's like at, at all point it it was like never like it's cool in some ways to be more informed about like pop like popular pop music um but that being said like my whole thing was like i mean i grew up in philadelphia in the 1990s and man i never knew one person who listened to a boys to men album all the way through so uh look it's a new generation uh, I'm going to step aside, you know, maybe revisit recovering the satellites and just, you know, try to take some comfort in holding true to the same tastes I had when I was 15. I just think that for the next generation, that this is uh, undercover territory that the next generation, if you are a 12 year old listening to this show and you're going to be a music critic in 10 years, maybe start studying up on your like you said, your Collective Soul albums, your Stone Temple Pilots albums, your albums that, yeah, they're rock bands, but it's pop music. Like, that was pop music in the 90s, too. Yeah. You know, that was still a time where, uh, you know, Goo Goo Dolls' name was like a number one song for like weeks, you know, or Iris. Iris was. Was a huge song, you know. So if we're going to observe this other pop stuff, why not talk about this other thing that for whatever reason is still considered uncool but like celine dion now is not beyond the pale and and look i'm not saying don't put her on the list but that is the one area where these two lists are linked you know like if we want to talk about how new pitchfork is less snobby and more uh inclusive well there's still this corner (laughs) that is not included and i feel like this is going to be a running theme maybe in this episode because when we get to the Pearl Jam discussion, I feel like this is pertinent there as well. But uh, before we get to that, we have our mailbag segment. And Ian, Mm -hmm. uh, this is a good letter this week. We were actually going to read this letter last week, but we had too much stuff in our episode, so we had to hold it over. Um, If you want to hit us up, our email address is IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. Ian, you want to read this letter? Absolutely. Yeah, we did not get any updates on the Drake Fontano beef, so uh, <laughs> so we're, we're going to stick with this one. Um, so, hi, Ian and Steven. Uh, I guess he went with alphabetical. Uh, I, yes. know, <laughs> I know you have been called a Stockton and Malone or Siskel and Ebert, but I would like to propose that you two are the Burton and Ernie of indie rock. I won't say who is who. Oh. Not a question so far. Uh, oh, my question. Okay, he's getting to it. Is around. I'm the I'm the I'm the Ernie. I think because I'm the taller one. <laughs> Isn't Ernie the tall one? I've I don't, I don't know, dude. Which one has okay. less hair? That's Bert, right? <laughs> okay, that's me. Ernie, er, the tall one has less hair. I think. Gotcha. I think that's Bert. Bert's the yellow one. Uh, okay. Gotcha. My question is to around to what extent do you subject yourself to a terrible album just because it is being talked about? Since you probably have to consume so much music on a regular basis to stay in the conversation with your jobs, do you wonder how often an impatient mood at the time where a huge backlog of albums on the to-listen-to list has killed most room for gradual assessment? Do you start skipping through tracks faster and faster to get the album over with and onto the album that will probably feel like a chore, only to realize you never even really got beyond the intros before you started skipping the last three or four songs? How do you mitigate that? 
Dan from Austin. I think this is a really great question about like how the fuck do you listen to so much music? Yeah, and how do you get through what is a terrible album that you know you have to talk about? Before we answer this, have you been getting a lot of Hurricane Ian jokes this week? Like, is 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 that something you've been subjected to? I feel like this might be a thing where if you write a negative review of an album, that they're gonna say it got hit with Hurricane Ian. Like maybe this will become a thing. Has this has this come up with you at all this week? All right, I want to read to you like two texts that have come through in the fourteen minutes in which we've been recording. Um, First one's for my brother. Man, I haven't seen an Ian be so hard on Florida since that Black Kids LP, which I didn't review. I didn't review that one. Let's get let's get my brother Hal in the next episode. This guy's got jo- wow. this guy's got jokes. Um, that was a good one, man. We need a rim shot for yeah. that joke. And next, weakened but still dangerous. Ian is headed towards Georgia and South Carolina. Think they ripped this headline from a football weekend circa 2005, which re- <laughs> which refers to my heroic alcohol consumption when living in Georgia. Um, so. Yeah, just real time stuff happening here with Hurricane Ian, you know, like with all, you know, of course, with like all due respect to the people who are like, you know, getting battered yes. with this. We're not trying to make too much. This is more a joke about me than y'all. Let's just be very clear. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We, uh, you know, our hearts go out, of course, to the state, but we do have Ian here. <laughs> yeah. and we have Hurricane Ian. It cannot go unremarked upon. Your brother with the black uh, with the black kids yes. album joke. My God, yeah, he's definitely a guy. That was a good one. He's definitely a guy who stopped reading Pitchfork in two thousand eight. So, <laughs> oh man, good ref. I would have gone. Um, is Puddle of Mud from Florida? I feel like they. I no, they're from like Kansas City. I think. Really, I'm, I'm oh, almost man. positive they're like one of the few bands from that era who are not from Florida. They are from Kansas City, Missouri. Because Wes Scanlon, <laughs> yeah, he's very is... Floridian. <laughs> He is. He looks like if you were to look up Florida man in the dictionary, you feel like you'd see a picture of Wes Scanlon looking disheveled, like with his like white undershirt on. Uh, what was that Nirvana song he sang? Um, Didn't he do a Nirvana Polly? song? I, was it Polly? <laughs> I think it was. Uh, I'm gonna. <laughs> yeah, we we are we. Uh, it was about yes. a girl. It was about a girl. Okay, good. I'm glad it wasn't Polly. That would have been. <laughs> just beyond the pale. Uh, yeah, that would have been offensive if he had done Polly. But yeah, about a girl. There's for those who haven't seen it, look up West Scanlon about a girl, uh, and just enjoy some great music. We're definitely not uh, going to answer this mailbag question, are we? <laughs> no, no. Let's no. Let's get back All to the right. question. So uh, Dan from Austin, he's asking like, how do you plow through a terrible album? And I have to say that I actually get excited. If I'm writing about a terrible album, because I think a terrible album, like a truly misguided, miscalculated, uh, badly executed record by a major artist, you know, not digging into Bandcamp to find some obscure record, but like by a major artist, like a disaster. It really is, I think, as unique as like a masterpiece. And in a way, it's more fun to write about. I'm always more interested in failure than success. I think <laughs> failure is more interesting than success. So if there is a record, and I was trying to think of an example of this. I mean, we talk about album cycles all the time, but like Daddy's Home, for instance, isn't like a terrible record. No. I don't think it's a great record, but it's like, okay. It was just that the conversation around it was funny, but the album itself was fine. I mean, the closest I could come to from like a major artist was Everything Now by arcade fire like which i'm not even sure if if it deserves to be called terrible but it was an album that was bad in ways that was fun to write about so i got really excited about that record even though i didn't like the record itself I, i got excited about talking about it and writing about it um what's harder for a critic i think is an album that's just okay and that's true of like 90% of albums. <laughs> They're just okay. And because there's nothing really to say about an album that's just okay. I mean, all you can really say is, oh, it's fine for what it is. Which is the most boring observation you could make. So I would say that the problem is sort of mediocrity, not awfulness. 
you know, and a lot of things are just sort of mediocre and there's nothing really to latch on to as a listener or as a writer. Yeah. I mean, my interpretation of this question wasn't so much about like terrible albums because like, yeah, terrible albums, which I haven't had the pleasure of reviewing in a very long time. I mean, I'm thinking about like the Prophets of Rage EP, like the Public Enemy Rage Against the Machine slash Cypress <laughs> Hill. Like that was fun. I have no problem getting myself excited for that. And also like the the okay for what it is, like the middling, like for example, that Preoccupations album I reviewed. Like, I mean, those can be like the most rewarding things to do as a critic because it really forces you to like be like to work through ambivalence and so forth. But you know, the, the thing that I took away from this question is how do you listen to stuff that you kind of feel obligated to listen to for the sole purpose of keeping up with the conversation, uh, you know, being able to comment on the narrative. And, you know, that is really tough because, you know, he mentions our jobs. Now, for me, it's like I do have a nine to five. And so which cut which cuts greatly into the amount of time I can spend like listening to music and Every single album has it like plays a part in this calculus of like, do I listen to this thing that I'm pretty sure I'm not gonna like, or do I listen to this new album that I might like, or what about listening to old music I know I will enjoy? And so my patience has been very, very limited in the you know, in these past few years, but also there's like a freedom in that, you know, because um, you know, in 2012, let's say I would have like, ha- I would have listened to that, say Sudan archives album, like five times to see if like the hype is real. Now I can listen to like five to 10 minutes, say it's not my thing. And then go about listening to animal collective feels, you know, <laughs> because that's, because <laughs> that's what the weather dictates and that's what I want to listen to. And so, I mean, I think what, what Dan's asking here is like just a question about aging and like reconciling uh, your receding relevance, which great question in regards to the Pearl Jam discussion that we're going to have, because like this, the second half of your book is kind of about that. Um, well, and I'll say too, like as like I am a full-time critic and I have to write columns every week and I really don't feel obligated to listen to an album I really don't care about in order to have a take on it. I actually think that if you do it that way, you're doing it wrong because there are so many people now who have takes that if you're just manufacturing something that you're not really invested in, it really defeats the purpose of, of doing it. Like for me, I think that if I'm writing something, I want people to know that I actually like give a shit about like what I'm talking about. And I think that comes through. It just comes through in like how you express yourself. I think people just have a sixth sense for that kind of thing. And if you're like the critic who's like, well, I'm going to talk about Lizzo this week because <laughs> Lizzo, she twerked and she played James Madison's flute. And that's what people are talking about. And I have to have a take on it. If you actually don't care about Lizzo twerking and playing James Madison's flute, the people who are seeing you talk about that, they're going to know that. So like for me, like this week, I wrote about this band from Philadelphia called Second Grade, who I'll be talking about in Recommendation Corner. And they put out a record that is out today. It's called Easy Listening. It's one of my favorite records of the year. I wrote about 2,000 words on it. I have a long interview with the lead singer. Second grade, obviously not as popular as Lizzo, but I also know that, well, there's not a ton of other people talking about this record, and maybe I can corner the market on the second grade easy (laughs) listening conversation, and it's actually something I give a shit about. And if you approach it that way, I think you will actually be more sustaining uh, for for yourself and your voice, as opposed to just chasing trends on Twitter, you know, I I just think that that's the wrong way to do it. So yeah, don't keep up with conversations you don't care about. I think that is a good rule of thumb in all corners of life. You will be happy because you know you're only alive for so long. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't want to be on my deathbed and be like, I spent three days talking about Lizzo twerking and playing James Madison's flute. That seems like I wasted those three days <laughs> of my life. So, yeah, that's my answer to that. Yeah, on my tombstone put, he spent way too much time talking about the crystal flute. Yeah. <laughs> 
but you didn't though. You were like you were talking about you were posting Simpsons memes and talking about college football. Like you <laughs> you died as you lived. That's right. <laughs> you know, uh, it was a great life. Uh, let's get to our list of topics for this week, and of course, we're starting off with the biggest music news of the week, which is the release of my new book. Uh, Long Road, Pearl Jam, and the Soundtrack of a Generation. Um, look, this is our show, so I'm, I made Ian read the book so that we could have a self-promotional infomercial in the middle of this episode. Mm-hmm. We could talk about the book. You know, if I'm going to tie it to something relevant from this week, I think I would go back to those Pitchfork 90s music lists. Again, they, they ranked... 250 best songs of the decade and 150 albums and Pearl Jam made the songs list uh, Corduroy from Vitology I believe was at number 240 or so Uh, no albums on the albums list kind of a surprise you would think Pearl Jam if they were going to end up on any list it would be on the albums list not on the songs list I'm actually surprised they made any like either list, just because Pitchfork historically not a Pearl Jam fan. And again, it, it goes back to my point before that there are certain bands that old Pitchfork and new Pitchfork are in agreement on, but like for different reasons. And <laughs> like old Pitchfork didn't like Pearl Jam because in the late 90s, early 2000s, Pearl Jam was the epitome of mainstream rock. It was sort of like what indie rock, in a way, was reacting against, or at least it could be perceived that way. And New Pitchfork, I would imagine a lot of the writers there now would look at Pearl Jam as being this sort of old-fashioned, classic rock-style band. I mean, really, their opinion probably wouldn't be that much different than the old Pitchfork opinion. It's kind of an interesting concentric circle scenario like where this is like one of the areas like where maybe those two different groups agree um one of the theses of my book is that pearl jam i think unfairly is locked into this sort of image as a 90s only band i think like the popular understanding of them is that they are like locked in the 90s and really kind of locked in their 10 period Mm. and that's all you really need to know about them the attempt i'm making with the book is to broaden the understanding and the appreciation of this band that I think there is a bigger career and a bigger impact than maybe they get credit for. One of the cases I make in the book is that the 2000 tour where they released 72 bootlegs, which is something many people have made fun of Mm -hmm. over the years. I make the case that that is one of the strongest bodies of work in their catalog, which might seem contrarian or even insane (laughs) to some people. But I do think that if you want to make a case for them as a mature sort of forward-looking rock band, that their work as a live band is so important to understanding that. Uh, And I think all their songs sound better live, but I, I just think how they have lived on as a great concert act in the vein of like a Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band or the Who, you know, being part of that continuum. I think that is their greatest legacy, even more than the albums. Um, but I've talked a lot about Pearl Jam this week. I am curious. I know you read the book, mm-hmm. which was very sweet of you. I appreciate that. It means a lot to me. You checked it out. What do you think of the book? And what, what are your thoughts on Pearl Jam at this point and where they stand and what their legacy is? So, I mean, Pearl Jam was... One of the thi- one of the things that your book gets at, which I found to be very resonant, was how for someone like myself who was eleven or twelve years old when ten came out, like you could own that and think like this is my band, like this is something that is like off the beaten path and you know isn't what all the other kids are listening to. Wait, you know this album like sold how many copies? But yet it was so <laughs> true because. This was like the first band that made me feel like an individual as far as a music consumer. I have a very distinct memory of bringing a cassette copy of 10 to summer camp. And one of the older kids, he said, yo, what's that MC Pearl Jam and the boys? Like, you know, reference to obviously Heavy (laughs) D and the boys who are much cooler. I mean, that is... Look, that is a devastating diss. I remember it like 30 years later. And you, you, you mentioned the irony of like, you know, us getting back to right where we were in 1992, where all the cool kids are listening to Mariah Carey and Boyz to Men and like Pearl Jam fans are marginalized. So, um, yeah, this I own the Pearl Jam like stick figure uh, T-shirt. Um, 
this, I, I was very much in the tank, uh, up to Vitology, no code. I was still there, but you know, I kind of, um, you know, started to recede at that point. And, you know, you also mentioned how, um, you know, this book is kind of a commentary on generation X as a whole being in the middle of this pre and post internet sort of timeline. Um, and when the time came for me to like, the other most important album of my teens was OK Computer. You've written about Radiohead as well. And so, yeah, like when that album came out, like I turned on Pearl Jam really hard. Like that to me was, I'm not listening to this grunge, this alt rock stuff anymore. And yeah, I didn't like, I, I bought Yield. I thought it was kind of boring. I think one of the best things your book does is make a case for Yield as misunderstood, which is really fascinating given my memory of it is this very middle of the road, um, you know, Pearl Jam desperately doing Pearl Jam sort of thing. But um, yeah, it was just so, I don't know, just so disorienting to read this and just remember what was actually like this time that I actually lived through. Um, and especially how, Pearl Jam, like, even if they are seen as this, like, kind of quasi-boomer, middle-of-the-road, like, corporate rock sort of band, how with a lot of the things that Nirvana is credited for, for example, like, kind of centering women in their lyrics and, like, standing up for social causes, like, Pearl Jam, like, really did that stuff, you know? Um, and I think they're kind of misunderstood or underappreciated as this, like, agent for social change but they, but the way they did it, I guess, is seen as like locked in the '90s and kind of embarrassing. Be it the Ticketmaster stuff, be it the message songs on verses, which you know, let's be real, like yeah, Glorify G, WMA. It's like I can imagine a band trying to do something like this and have it be super embarrassing right now. But yeah, it's it, they're not subtle. At no, all, like <laughs> on that record, there's not a lot of subtlety. Although I will say that in the context of the time, to have a major rock band do a song like WMA was actually like, pretty progressive. You know, even if in retrospect you want to look at it and roll your eyes at it, you know, I think the intention there was to use the platform in a positive way. And when you are, exist in a media landscape that's pre-internet, you know, which is I think vital to understanding the impact that Pearl Jam had, that this was really the last stages of a media culture where if it wasn't on MTV, if it wasn't on the radio, it was really hard for people in the middle of the country to hear what you were doing. And it really exploded what the significance of the band was. Like what you were saying earlier about how you felt like this was a band for you and that this was a band for like outsiders. And I think that's a take that I also feel is true, but if we had been five years older when that record dropped, probably wouldn't have felt that way. You know, like if, if I had been in my 20s when 10 dropped, I, I would probably look at that record much differently. But I turned 14 like the week after that record came out. I was square in the demographic mm -hmm. for uh, appreciating that album. I'll say this too, you know, since I'm in salesman mode here, that... I do think, and I've heard this from various people who don't like Pearl Jam, but have enjoyed the book, that if you're curious about the 90s, curious about the culture and the music landscape at the time, that you have to at least acknowledge Pearl Jam's presence. And I think studying them, learning about them is a way to understand the decade. Like if you want to cut them out of your narrative about the decade, you're leaving out a pretty significant chunk you know and it's not really about your personal feelings about the band you know that's in the eye of the beholder that's an opinion but it's a fact that they were a huge part certainly of music in the first part of the 90s mm -hmm. uh so if you're a, an agnostic or even if you hate the band <laughs> if you like this show i think You'll get something out of the book. At the very least, it's entertaining, I think. Yeah. I would like to think. They sold a million copies of uh, Versus in its first week. I mean, like, you can't... Like, that. that is in sync numbers. If the very least you're, like, interested in, like, pop music from, like, a straight-up statistical standpoint, then, yeah, Pearl Jam absolutely is a part of that story. And um, I, I, just thinking about, like, so many of what they did, which has, like, really no modern-day analogs, like not going on MTV, fighting against Ticketmaster, 
um you know like making an entire album with neil young it's just like (laughs) it's just such a fascinating uh story and you know to think about a time when a rock band like pearl jam who you know not a pop rock band but a rock band like the world anticipated every single move they made um and just the way that they I, i think that the 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 kind of takeaway from that era is like you mentioned how people more or less turn their back on Pearl Jam and don't defend them the way they might like with even like Corn or Limp Biscuit or like the way the Boomers like still rode with like uh, the Who and by the way like this is I I can't believe I'm just like kind of sliding this admission in here until this week when I read your book I have not listened to a Who album as a whole I listened to Who's Next. It's pretty good. Wow. It's, it's pretty good. <laughs> wow, I got you to listen to Who's Next. I'm I'm pretty happy about that. Yeah, yeah I, you know, it, it, as you were saying, I mean, I, you know, the book, I tried to have a broader discussion about just the decade and other things that were going on in the culture. And it's not just the 90s either. I mean, there is the whole second half of the book, which I know from talking with you, you're like, I, I don't really know even what you're talking about in this part of the book in terms of like what the songs are and stuff. I think a lot of people dropped off uh, you know, going into the 21st century with them. But in a way, I think that's the most interesting part of the story just because so many of their contemporaries completely imploded, you know, by the end of the 90s. Uh, and obviously, if you look at the big four Seattle bands, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, Eddie Vedder's the only front man who's still with us. Um, and I think just how they survived the intense fame and the backlash and uh, and all the things that changed in rock music, you know, going into the new century, um, I think is interesting. I say that as an unbiased observer of all this. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess my humble hope is that people read this book and maybe when there's lists in the future that they'll slip no code <laughs> into their albums list. Because I do feel like that's an album. that That is their sort of like... Um, potential cool guy to rediscover album. That is you know, definitely a that is definitely a contrarian's choice. Though I I listened to Vitology and that one stood out to me as still their best work. Um, I think because that like that's got Corduroy as like the kind of peg for people to revisit it. But yeah, No Code Vitology, super interesting albums. So let's get to our next topic, and we're we're going super dad rock this week. Uh, which is, of course, my comfort zone. <laughs> we need to we need to talk about the massive, and I mean super massive, new box set devoted to Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Um, I believe that there is a smaller version of this box set, but if you are interested in this record, and actually this is going to be part of our conversation about this, because I think you and I come from different points of view on this, but for me, if you are a fan of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, you need to spring for the deluxe edition. <laughs> the 11 LPs, 8 CDs. I don't know if they're going to be streaming the entire box set on streaming platforms. I guess we'll know by the time this episode posts. I know sometimes with these box sets, they'll only do the like the, the smaller version so that they compel people, you know, the insane people that want everything to like, you know, drop some money and get the big box. Um I wrote about this box set last week and it really was a a revelation for me. You know, I've often said in the past that my favorite Wilco record is my bootleg of Yankee Hotel Foxtrot outtakes, because as much as I love the original record, I think that the pursuit of making that record is uh, even more interesting than the record itself. And look, there aren't that many albums I think you can say that about. There are certain records that have that reputation where people just want to hear every iteration of like what was done during the making of the record. I think Pet Sounds obviously is is that kind of record in a way it's maybe the original uh of that kind of record. But you have like records like Fleetwood Mac's Tusk. I think Radiohead Kid A probably falls under there. There's other examples, but I think what makes Yankee Hotel Foxtrot stand out if you know anything about the history of of that record is that 
Wilco went through many different iterations of the songs when they were working on that record. So you have versions of, say, of the song Camera. I think Camera is like a song that they did so many different versions of. There might be like a psychedelic rock version of it. There might be a garage rock version of it. There's like a country rock version of it. And for me personally, hearing them work in the laboratory and run through so many different arrangements where it's camera, but it, 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 it feels like a different song. You know, it's the same song, but it feels like 10 different songs in one. For me, is endlessly fascinating. And, you know, I'm one of those people, I've, I've, I've rode with Wilco for a long time. I, I, we talked about Cruel Country, their album from this year, uh, earlier this year. And I, I was very, uh, you know, I, I think I called that their best album in at least a decade. So I still think Wilco's making great music. But you listen to this album and you really realize, like, wow, Jay Bennett was such a genius when it came to arranging songs. Because he was really the guy that took the lead on that. And when you listen to the final Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, I mean, the story of that record is basically Jeff Tweedy, Jim O'Rourke, and Glenn Kochi essentially taking a lot of the music out of the record. And you know, crafting it into this very austere, kind of chilly-sounding, sparse record, which is brilliant for what it is. But, uh, you know, in my piece, I, I, I mentioned this Bruce Springsteen quote about the difference between making music and making a record, and how when you make a record, you sometimes lose the spontaneity or the joy that comes from making music, and that's a necessary process but the music that Wilco made at this time, I think that really comes through on the box set. And as much as I love the record, I also love the music, if that makes sense. And the box set is what really spotlights, spot, uh, spotlights that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the one that's available on streaming, as you mentioned, I believe that's the 7LP version. That's got, it's five discs, 7LP, 51 songs. But that's not the one that like, is the super deluxe $250 one that has, I believe 11 LPs. Um, so yeah, if you're, if, well, you can get the CD version for like 70 bucks, <laughs> just throwing that out there. A, I got that, that. That's what I got. That's what I paid for mine. And believe me, it's like my memories of Yankee hotel Foxtrot are CD. I know that like, this is such an audiophile album and it's like, it would seem to be like conducive to vinyl listening, but like I'm thinking of like my bootleg CD version followed by the official CD version. Yeah, this is a CD album. Um, this is, you know, you, I think we get a sense of like the different ways in which you and I interact with some of our favorite bands in that for me, like I never like to listen to uh, the songs in process. Like, like there have been times where, bands I've really liked have asked me, Hey, you want to like listen to the demos of this album I'm working on? And I'm always saying no, not, not out of like, yeah, I don't fucking care to listen to this, but more it's just like, I think I ascribe this magic to album making as opposed to songwriting to put that Bruce Springsteen quote in context. And, you know, as much as I love Yankee Hotel Foxtrot and Wilco, it wasn't until I guess the pandemic that I finally watched. I am trying to break your heart. Um, you know, which isn't just like this thing for Wilco diehards. It's roundly considered like one of the best music documentaries of recent times. And um, I just saw like their setup in the studio with the microphones and like all the strange instruments. And it just gives me so much anxiety thinking about like how <laughs> difficult it is to even just like make a song on your computer. Um, and also like with the demos and outtakes, unless I'm listening to, uh, unless I'm reviewing a reissue, which I've made, I've had the either privilege or onus to do with Smashing Pumpkins albums. Like, I mean, we're talking even about like the 128 song deluxe version of uh, the Aeroplane Flies High. I'm not really interested in to add alternate takes or demos. Like, that's kind of one of the things that uh, makes me pissed off about Apple Music is that they'll redo albums and like include uh, like 24 songs on the Stone Roses. Um, but with this, um, listening, I, I did, you know, take some time to listen to the outtakes and alternate versions. And 
I, I don't know if it makes me appreciate Yankee Hotel Foxtrot more. I mean, I think it should because there are just so many ways that Yankee Hotel Foxtrot becomes something different and something lesser. I think the unified theory of everything version of camera is very indicative of that because it's raw. It's like more like, I guess, like a country rock song instead of the version with like the thumb piano on Yankee Hotel. And um, it just shows how much effort went into making this record, which really uh, creates this interesting conflict with you know Jeff Tweedy's book, How to Write One Song, which seems to espouse more of a guided by voices philosophy of like, yeah, just put it on tape. I'm sure it'll be great. Um, you know, it's, I, I, I guess, but that book was like written for like novices, whereas Jeff Tweedy is a, is a genius. So um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it has allowed me to see this as the work of humans, but also to... I guess be kind of sad about how I don't know if bands get to do this kind of stuff anymore, you know, take three years to just rework and rework and rework and have the trust of a label and like a band, um, to put together a record of such magnitude, but also just so much elbow work. I mean, God, can you imagine like how many times they had to do like the poor places radio stuff? To get it right, you know, that probably took like eight hours. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, it is interesting, the narrative of this record and how I think the box set will change it a little bit because when Yankee Hotel Foxtrot was released, a big part of the story was Wilco makes this record, it's kind of weird, and they get dropped by their record label. And that's a big theme of the movie too, this like David and Goliath story between like the the small indie band and this like corporate uh label. And I feel like that story does not seem significant anymore. Like it's not really the most interesting part of it, especially since Wilco was like swiftly re-signed by another label that was also a subsidiary <laughs> of the same company, which is Warner Brothers. So it's not like their big star and just got destroyed because their album didn't come out. You know, it was like a minor bump in the road during Wilco's long career. The interesting part of this record is like you were saying that they took so long to make this record and that it was a a real sort of artistic saga, you know, Mm -hmm. where they're just in the studio trying to make not just a great record, but a record that, you know, Jeff Tweedy talks about this in the liner notes. He wanted to make a record that he hadn't heard before, you know, like a visionary type record Mm -hmm. in the vein of like a kid. A like, that's the same thing Radiohead was trying to do at around the same time. And there was a similarly like long process, like where they were exploring that. And, you know, I'm with you where you you were talking about how you're not really interested in hearing demos for most bands or most songs in progress. I think I'm actually with you most of the time because most of the time, like demos just sound like poorly recorded versions of like what the song is going to be. Like it just seems like a lesser version of what is going to end up on the album. I think Yankee Hotel Foxtrot is an exception because the outtakes and the alternate versions, even if you can justify the record as it was released. And I think the record as it was released, like there's, I don't think that there's anything on the box set that should have gone on that record because that record is what it is. But the stuff that's on this box set is also awesome. (laughs) And I think, I think really it's not a matter of the stuff on the album is better or the outtakes were better. It's that, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, as it was released, like, that's what the record is. It's a mood piece. And the big difference between the album and the outtakes is that the outtakes tend to be a lot more bombastic and overstuffed and kind of crazy at times. And it, it if they had gone in that direction, it just would have been a much different record. But, like, I love hearing this stuff because if you just divorce yourself, if you don't compare it, to the album and you just experience this as music it's a lot of wonderful music so the matter of like what deserves to go on or not i think that's a moot point i just love immersing myself in this world and experiencing a band that was really pushing itself to be inventive mm-hmm. you know and it's it's exciting to hear the all the ideas being thrown around I, I it's just such an exciting listen i think for that reason 
Yeah, so Wilco, highly recommend listening to this band. Yeah, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Good record, like it. yeah. It's a pretty good record. Um, let's get to our last topic for this episode, which is Cool It Down, the new album by the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs. This is the fifth Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs record. It's their first in nine years since 2013's Mosquito. I feel like we have talked about other Meet Me in the Bathroom era bands. We recently talked about Interpol, for instance. The Strokes have come up, of course. Yeah, yeah, yes. I guess like they're the number three band. They're the Alice in Chains, if you will, <laughs> of of the New York scene. Um, I'm curious, what do you think of Yeah, Yeah, Yes generally, and and how did this new record hit you? So you mentioned that they're. <laughs> I, I disagree with the uh, Alice in Chains comparison because I think if only because like nowadays I think the Yeah, Yeah, Yes are at least the most respected or respectable of the band to come out of that era. Um, I think, and there are several reasons for it. First of which is well, like like the Strokes are obviously the biggest band, yeah, from that time. Absolutely, they're the Pearl Jam of 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 that scene. And the Strokes, by the way, huge Pearl Jam fans. Oh. It's it, it was so funny in the two thousands. People were like, "Oh, you like Julian Casablancas? You must listen to television <laughs> yeah. all the time." And he's like, "No, like we grew up listening to Pearl Jam, and like they still wave the Pearl Jam flag." Like Eddie Vedder recently performed i think it was juice box Ooh. with the strokes so uh in interpol I, 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 there's really no nirvana no of unless you want to say the white stripes are nirvana <laughs> uh except that, anyway yeah, except the fact that like kurt cobain never lived to have like just some of the worst haircuts you've seen on in uh the 2020s but um yeah the aas like have this position of like being a band that is you know maybe second to TV on the radio as far as like respected or respectable, because even if their music has been, at least for me, a little bit hit or miss um, over the years, they release albums so infrequently that you can't really get bored of them, you know, cause like Interpol, they release a new album. You kind of ex- know what to expect. The Strokes, you kind of know what to expect. Um, with this one, I think every time they come back, there's a desire to, you know, reassess them. And also Karen O comes off definitely as the best of the bunch in Meet Me in the Bathroom. She seems very level-headed and likable in a way that a lot of those bands don't. And being able to just kind of flip the gender dynamics of an era, like makes it more interesting for reassessment. So uh, the AAS have benefited from that. And also like they've put out the most recent uh, beloved album of those bands. I guess we could look to It's Blitz in 2009 that was sort of grouped in with uh, Dirty Projectors and St. Vincent, Animal Collective, such and such, as like the as like peak indie, and it was kind of ahead of its time as far as like an embrace of dance music, synthesizers, uh, and I think that's as loved, if not more so, than Fever to Tell. So um, I think yeah, so I think that there's so much goodwill coming into this, and yeah, I'm interested in hearing it. It's a short album. I'll give it that. It's like eight songs, 30 some odd minutes, right? Yeah. Yeah. It really breezes by. Yeah. You know, going back to what you were saying about, you know, just comparing them to other bands of their generation, um, they are the most malleable out of those bands. Like if you think about the New York bands and we'll group the White Stripes in here too, because they're not from New York, but they're part of that era the thing that's striking about them is like how fixed they are in terms of their image and sound. Like you think of the white stripes, you think of the strokes, you think of Interpol, they all wear costumes essentially, mm-hmm. and they all make records within a fairly narrow sonic vein. You know, the, if you hear one record, you kind of know what the next record is going to sound like. Some records are better than others, but like they're not really breaking the mold in any way. And as you said, yeah, yeah, yeahs are the exception to that, because while you know Karen O is one of the most magnetic and stylish lead singers of the last twenty years, and I think one of the best lead singers mm-hmm. of the last twenty years, uh, you know she's not fixed in one moment in time. You know, like the Fever to Yell era, which was more of this post punk era, is wildly different from as you were saying, it's Blitz, and it's always felt like yeah, yeah, yeahs um, had the ability to pivot. 
much easier than the other bands. And I think that's also allowed them to have maybe in a way a more consistent career. And, you know, that brings us to this new record, Cool It Down. Uh, As you said, it's a pretty short record, but I feel like it's probably one of the best, if not the best album to be made by a band from that scene like in the last few years. I mean, I have a soft spot for the new Abnormal. <laughs> I, I like that record quite a bit. Um, but this album, I think it feels more like a, a contemporary indie album than what The Strokes do or what indie, what Interpol does or what, it's a little bit later, but like LCD Sound System, you know, the, they feel like they're sort of evoking what they've done in the past. Mm-hmm. And... I think uh, Yeah Yeah Yeahs have been able to move forward with this record that it's basically like a doom-laden synth-pop record. <laughs> you know, like like Perfume Genius is on the first song on the record, uh, which is called Spitting on the Edge of the World, which I think, for me, is clearly the best song on the record. And it really sets the tone for what the rest of the record is, which is, again, this sort of, like, spooky, sexy, cool... <laughs> electropop vibe it's a very vibey type sound and it really benefits i think from the presence of karen o who if she weren't on the record maybe you could mistake this for like any other group or 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 any there's lots of people working in this vein right now but because she's such a singular charismatic presence it really gives it a character that it might not otherwise have i guess my question because i don't know a ton about the making of this record Mm-hmm. is to what degree is this like an actual band mm-hmm. album? Because if you had told me that this is just a Karen O solo record, I'd have no reason to dispute that because that's what it sounds like when you listen to it. I, I don't get the sense of this being a band necessarily, but maybe I'm totally wrong with that. Um, I mean, the other members sort of fade in the background. It really seems like a showcase for Karen O. And I can think you could argue that that's always the case with a Yeah, Yeah, Yeah's album. Even though, like, Nick Zinner is someone who's kind of an in-demand session player. He has a very distinct style of uh, playing guitar. But when you mention that it does sound contemporary, like a modern-day indie band, I mean, yeah, it's released on Dead Oceans, um, which makes it, technically speaking, an indie rock record. It's short like an indie rock record, and it is going for this... Uh, kind of cosmic, uh, reverby synthesizer dance. Like it, it fits very well within the modern uh, scope of things. In the same way that like it's Blitz did, um, and also like Show Your Bones, the very underrated Show Your Bones. Um, which the one the yeah yeah yeah's album I I I I we listen to the most. But I think what's I guess nice about this album is how unassuming it is like i think spinning on the edge of the world makes it sound like a huge comeback album but it stays more or less within that realm for about a half hour you know i was listening to it while making dinner i'm like oh wait like it it ended it's over um which can be you know it could cut both ways in that if you really believe in the aas is this generational band it might seem a bit um a bit slight but if you're someone like myself who just really likes to feel like, you know, not falling off the edge of relevance. You can say, oh yeah, the U- yeah, yeah, yes, they still got it. Maybe we should reconsider whether bands from that era have something to say. And, um, you know, this also, of course, makes me wish that like TV on the radio can make an album like this uh, in the not too distant future. I would be totally happy with that. I think the world would be as well. Yeah, you know, it is curious that, you know, this is the first, yeah, yeah, yeah's record in nine years. So maybe people will be expecting something a little weightier than an eight-song record. But I actually feel like that plays to this record's advantage because, you know, how many albums do we hear that strain for importance by just putting a bunch of stuff on there that doesn't really need to be there and it ends up killing the experience? Whereas this record, you put it on, and I think it is actually you know, a a nice, succinct statement that asserts what you like about Karen O, Mm -hmm. you know, because that was the impression I had listening to this record. Like, wow, what a cool singer, what a great presence. What, again, like one of the great lead singers, I think of the last 20 years, like where, you know, there, there aren't a lot of people like her that 
just like you cannot ignore her when she's on when you're listening to it mm-hmm. you know it really made me appreciate like what she brings to the table because it's, there's just not a lot of people like her you know before or since mm-hmm. We've now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? Speaking of uh, stuff from 2002 that's now just coming back into the fold, um, City of Caterpillar. They are, what like, when you talk about, like, Screamo, I, I've had numerous instances at work where people are like, oh, you listen to Screamo? Like, Slipknot? For whatever reason, that's like many people's working definition of screamo. But like City of Caterpillar is the kind of band that you would bring up when you want to talk about like, quote unquote, the real stuff. They released an album in 2002. They're a Richmond, Virginia band who pretty much make it onto every single like best emo album or best emo songs list. Um, And they've come back with a new record called Mystic Sisters. Um, they more or less invented the seven minute screamo song, uh, you know, the one that has those elements, but also like very vast post rock uh, passages. Um, and they've come back with an album that is, you know, doesn't, it, it sounds more mature, it sounds less raw, it sounds better produced. Um, but at the same time, it sounds very contemporary because so many of the bands uh, that are trying to do a, more post-rock, more uh, indie, more considerate version of Screamo sound like this. So I think it's the, I, I think it's like the best thing to say about this album that it sounds like it could sound like a new band, except um, you know there's excitement centering around it because it's their first record in 20 years. They've been playing some shows recently, and they are kind of one of the many old school Screamo bands like Jerome's Dream who's coming back. So it really, and Satia, you know, the band, <laughs> the band who had the original drummer from Interpol, um, as For Your Health pointed out. So there are really cool things going on in Screamo, just in general, but like having this uh, band come back really gets to see like where this stuff came from. And hopefully it will open up a door where people can discover this music from the late 90s, early 2000s. So City of Caterpillar, Mystic Sisters, uh, if you like eight minute Screamo songs, there's a couple on this album. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are no eight-minute Screamo songs on the album I'm going to talk about, unfortunately. But uh, as I mentioned earlier, my recommendation corner for this week is about a band called Second Grade from Philadelphia and their new album, Easy Listening. And I've talked about Second Grade on this show before. Uh, it's led by this guy named Peter Gill, who also plays in another really good band called Friendship. Uh, but second grade has become in a way his central concern in recent years. And you can really hear that attention paid on easy listening. I was a fan of this band's 2020 record called hit to hit, which was this record. It was sort of like if guided by voices sounded more like the raspberries, you know, a very, uh, you know, sort of melodic band that specializes in really short songs. I think that record had about 24 songs. This one, easy listening the songs get a little bit longer but it's still about basically having a really cool verse a catchy chorus maybe repeat the chorus again 30 seconds later and then you get out Mm -hmm. like very efficient and svelte songwriting but just really well done and look when you come when you talk about power pop you're not really looking for originality you're not really looking for someone to uh reinvent the wheel you're actually looking for pleasures that are comforting and are also really well executed. So if you know the tropes of power pop, you're not going to be surprised. Like, are there jangly guitars on this record? Yes, there are. Do the vocals sound boyish in a melancholy sort of way? Yes, they do. Are the lyrics replete with references to the Beatles and Beach Boys? Of course. Are there lots of hand claps and gooey backing vocals? You bet. (laughs) All that stuff is here. And I would say that you know, there's like a lot of mediocre power pop records that get made. They sure are. And they all try to do this. <laughs> so like when someone actually pulls it off, I think it is a special achievement uh, because it is well-trod ground. But to find some way to, you know, new to do it and to do it in such a sort of charming and effervescent way, um, 
I think it deserves to be commended. So easy listening by second grade, a record I've really enjoyed listening to this week. I, as I said before, I have a feature uh, on the band on Uproxx this week. I invite you to check that out. If you're into this kind of thing, I think you're really going to like this record. We've now reached the end of our episode. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. (laughs) 